0: Welcome back to the interlude podcast. You are listening to episode 108, a conversation with Dr. Elise Cardonek. Dr. Cardonek is a high risk obstetrician at Cooper university healthcare and a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Cooper medical school of Rowan university. She specializes in the care of women who during their pregnancy receive a diagnosis of cancer She works closely with the patient's medical team, including their oncologist and obstetrician to formulate a plan that is in the best interests of both the mother and the child. After the pregnancy, she has a registry where both the mother and the child are followed closely to document long-term safety outcomes. On today's episode, Dr. Cardonick and I talk about everything that is related to cancer and pregnancy and answering some of your questions as well. We talk about how she started working with pregnant patients who had been diagnosed with cancer and it really started when she had seen a patient that was advised to terminate a pregnancy. And she said, well, wait a second let's see what we can do. And so that is really when her work began. We talk about what is safe and what is not safe during pregnancy, how we come to know this information. We talk about optimal timing of cancer treatment during pregnancy, as well as how that plays a role into delivery, the optimal timing of delivery, the effect of cancer treatments on pregnancy outcomes, as well as long-term child outcomes. We also talk about pregnancy after cancer, attempting conception, what is known, what is still yet to be known in this field. Cancer in pregnancy is rare. And one of the things that Dr. Cardonic shares on this episode is how to talk to your oncologist, how to find a team that is taking your best interests in mind, that is really weighing all the options and coming up with a comprehensive plan. This is really a comprehensive conversation that covers the key topics surrounding cancer and pregnancy from a medical standpoint. And with that, it is my honor to welcome Dr. Cardonick to the Interlude Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast, and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Dr. Cardonek, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Sure, I'm happy to.
0: Can you share a little bit about what, you know, what kind of work that you do, where you practice, how you got in to the field that you're in now?
1: Sure. So I am an obstetrician who then went on to specialize in um, medical disorders of pregnancy or high risk pregnancies. So that can be pregnant women with high blood pressure, diabetes, asthma, any medical problem, or a complicated fetus such as twins, triplets, et cetera. And during my fellowship, I met pregnant women who were then diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma or breast cancer. And the common theme was that they were encouraged to terminate because no one knew if you could treat cancer in pregnancy. So when I encountered the first patient and we investigated the options together, and when we found there were articles saying that termination did not improve her chance of survival. Um, The next step was, well, if you're not going to terminate because it's not going to make your survival better, can you go six months without therapy? That probably will affect your survival. So let's look at if we can give therapy in pregnancy. And we found some articles that showed that if you have chemotherapy in the second or third trimester, that your baby can be fine at birth because we don't give treatment in the first trimester. And that's true for most medical disorders of pregnancy. We try to avoid treatment when the organs are forming in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy or 10 weeks of pregnancy. So if we give chemo in the second and third trimester, we do know that the brain continues to develop. So the way I got started in the registry was working with this first patient and saying, okay, we know that your child's going to be normal at birth because they weren't exposed in the first or second trimester. Let's make sure that they develop on time and continue to grow as tall as their siblings, et cetera. So I decided to start a registry or at that point, just a collection of cases and just have women that I encountered who were pregnant with cancer, give me permission to be in contact with their pediatrician on a yearly basis and their oncologist. And then even though everyone kept saying, this is never going to happen again, a couple months later, after the Hodgkin's lymphoma patient, I met a patient with breast cancer who was encouraged to terminate. And soon after that, a patient uh, had leukemia. So after the third patient, I decided, okay, I'm going to collect this into a a uniform database because statistically, cancer and pregnancy happens about one in a thousand pregnant women. So if an oncologist in New Jersey sees two patients and an oncologist in Texas sees one patient in the span of a whole career, we're not going to learn anything. We're not going to note trends. We're not going to know what's the safest thing to do. So I started the registry so that doctors and patients from all over the country could send their information to a central location, and now we have 250 patients with breast cancer. No one person can have that in their practice in the course of a career. So we can now say, okay, we know now that adriamycin cytoxin is okay in the second and third trimester. We've seen that the babies can go to term. We've seen that the babies can develop normally. So although uh, I'm located in Camden, New Jersey, which is near, you know, kind of close to Philadelphia New York, I do have women in the registry from Florida, from California, even someone from Australia contacted us yesterday. So
0: that's, that's,
1: yeah, can come from all over.
0: Fantastic. And I, just as an aside, how does someone get into your registry? Do you have their oncologist, their OB call, or
1: do the patients call? You know, how do you build this list? Well, the interesting thing is in the beginning, uh, because almost 20% 20% of patients were advised to terminate. It was the patients right away that found me. Patients went on the internet. Patients said, oh my gosh, I, I wanna keep my pregnancy. You know, I can't choose between treating my cancer and hurting the baby or losing the baby or treating the baby and not helping myself. Like, what do I do? So that urgency in the beginning got patients on the internet and they would find me or they would find a group of women in Buffalo uh, called Hope for Tooth, Patty Murray, uh, and two other cancer survivors who had cancer during pregnancy started support group. So they found one of the two of us, it was very patient driven. And then Patty would refer the patient to me for the medical issues. I would refer patients to Patty to find a support woman to talk about how they handled cancer and pregnancy. It was always someone that had already delivered their baby. And then slowly doctors, whether after a couple of years, the, I guess the publications that we did, the lectures that I was given, the exposure about cancer and pregnancy. Now there's not that same urgency because now less doctors are recommending termination, which is wonderful. Now it's from 20% down to 12% in the last 10 years of the residency. So the patients don't have that same urgency to call and say, I need to make a quick decision before I either terminate or get treated. So now the, the enrollment rate's actually slower because there's not that urgency. But we want patients to know that even though your doctors in Oregon are happy to treat you and are comfortable treating you and they know adriamycin cytoxin is safe and they know they can do surgery in pregnancy, your information can still help another person because you would be our 251st patient and someone after you would be you know, 270th patient. So the more numbers we have, the more answers that we can get. So we're on the internet, we're on Instagram. Uh, so oncologists can call, patients can call um, and we take it from there. So when a patient calls us, we get their permission to be in contact with their oncologist, request their records. The patient doesn't have to get their records. We're in contact with their OB. We get their placental pathology, Their, you know, how, what the placenta look like at delivery, and the baby's outcome and the delivery. And then we get permission to follow with their pediatrician. And then every year on the baby's birthday, we then request baby's milestones, how the baby's growing and developing and things like that.
0: When you know, let me back up for a second. So when we had been talking before, you mentioned that, you know, in years of your residency, you hadn't seen anyone pregnant, you know, as an oncologist, I think we encounter that, you know, rarely, but it's not as foreign to us when it happens. Would you say a lot of OB residents in training are not coming across patients with cancer who or pregnant no, patients who are diagnosed
1: no. with cancer? I'm, saying I'm old. And when I did my residency, uh, most women were having their babies in their 20s. And as the women, you know, women for their careers or for other choices are having babies later, now we're encountering cancer in pregnancy more often because, I mean, I did see cervical cancer in pregnancy, right? Mm -hmm. Because I guess I was wrong. I never saw no patients, but cervical cancer in pregnancy, you know, was an abnormal pap smear that we then did a comb biopsy on. And usually they were able to continue their pregnancy. Chemotherapy really didn't uh, come into it because we were picking it up before there were positive nodes or, or in, the, in those cases in my residency. But I think mostly it's because of how long I've been in OB that women are putting their pregnancies off till later, mm-hmm. cancers being diagnosed in younger and younger women and the two populations are crossing more. Older mm-hmm. age at pregnancy is actually a higher risk for cancer in pregnancy. Yeah. So I think that I think from hearing from OB programs all around the country, they are seeing it in their training now. They're still only going to see a handful. Yeah. So those patients should still be followed in the central database. But I I think it's because of the change in the age of pregnancy that it's now being seen in residencies now where it wasn't earlier.
0: What I think is remarkable about the work that you're doing is that you're following the babies after they're born and following, you know, cause what I hear a lot from patients is when we talk about all the options and we always try to do what we can safely to allow the woman to continue with her pregnancy. And I think, you know, we have the discussion and it's important to have the discussion, but one of the questions that comes up a lot is, well, what are going to be the outcomes in 10 years or, you know, five years. And so tell me what you've seen in following the children, you know, longitudinally all this time.
1: Yeah, I think that that is the key to the database is to see trends at delivery, but also to show because, you know, patients want to know the long-term outcomes. Oncologists want to know the long-term outcomes. So we did a study. We took um, 35 children whose moms had cancer during pregnancy and received chemo and 22 children whose moms had Cancer, but did not need chemo before delivery. They either had a later diagnosis in pregnancy, an earlier stage, they had uh, a surgically treated cancer, but they didn't need chemo. So the common thread was mom had cancer with all the stress that's involved in that and all the, all the complications of the pregnancy. And then we compared at 18 months of age till 10 years of age. We brought them in, these 30, uh, the, the 35 in the exposed group, the 22 in the non exposed group. And a blinded psychologist who did not know whether these babies were exposed or not performed the age-appropriate developmental test. So if they were 18 months to three years of age, they got something called a Bailey test. And if they were older, they did reading and math and all these other tests. And we found no difference between the two groups, exposed versus no exposed. We did find that for every week that a baby stayed in utero and that mom wasn't asked to deliver preterm, every week that we were able to get that pregnancy closer to term, the um, IQ points went up. So prematurity is something that we have to pay attention to because it's very tempting. Someone's diagnosed at 28 weeks with breast cancer. We're like, oh, the nursery can take care of that baby. Let's just induce her 32. And then we can treat her like a non-pregnant patient. Well, a 32-week baby probably will do well, but it can have issues with prematurity. So we would prefer to treat that patient and have a term delivery. So, so preterm age at delivery did impact the development, but not the chemo. And then that study was replicated also in Europe. And instead of using a unexposed group of children of cancer moms, moms with cancer and pregnancy, they actually compared these babies to population norms which is even a lower risk pregnancy than cancer. And they also found no difference. And they also found improvement with avoiding prematurity.
0: So that's really, really incredible work because I feel like a lot of people know now you can give these drugs at this time and these are the drugs, you know, you can't give Herceptin, but yes, you can give Taxol and things like that. But the, you know, there is always this temptation of let's control the delivery and let's deliver as, you know, Earlier, um, in some cases, so that's really important. What would be an optimal time? You know, what we see in our end, and when we're having, as an oncologist, when we're having conversations with the OB, uh, MFM, you know, they'll say, "Okay, well, you know, we like to stop the chemo for a few weeks before a delivery, just so that their blood counts recover. You know, they're not at risk for infections and wound healing." And so it's always kind of tempting to have a planned delivery date. So, you know, when to stop chemo. So what would be kind of the optimal or the best, you know, if you could pick week that you would feel comfortable doing that?
1: If we're talking about most chemotherapies, breast cancer with adriamycin Cytoxin, or leukemia, any other cancers um, where we know chemo has been used in pregnancy before, you want to stop by 34, 35 weeks, and then you can deliver that patient at 37, 38 weeks. Now, if that patient at 34, 35 weeks, that's her last treatment. She doesn't need anything after delivery. She doesn't need radiation. She completed everything. Then let her just go into labor herself. You don't need to control anything. You finished your treatment. If a patient has Taxol, we have found if you're giving it weekly, that you can probably go a little bit further into pregnancy, maybe 35, 36 weeks, and then you can deliver her 38, 39 weeks.
0: That's really helpful. We've always kind of been tempted to stop at 32, 33 with Taxol thinking, you know, they need
1: that month to recover. No, they're not with Taxol because you're giving it weekly, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. So it's quicker quicker as well. That's that's really good,
0: really good information. And um, do you see any increased risk of, and I think I, I know the answer to this, but I want you to say it. Risk of delivery complications or problems during labor in this patient who received
1: chemotherapy? So if the patients have had that three week break between finishing treatment and, deli- and delivery, they usually do not have an increased complications. We do see some, in some studies, they had higher risk for high blood pressure for some reason. Um, the babies will be technically smaller, statistically smaller than if they had not had chemotherapy. So someone has a history of three eight pound babies probably not gonna have an eight pound baby again with chemotherapy. So statistically they will be a smaller baby. Um, and I guess if you're, you have chemotherapy close to delivery, then the risk would be, uh, let's say it would depend on what the risks are. If the patient has low platelets for a complication of chemotherapy, she's at high risk for bleeding. If she has low white count, she's at high risk for infection. So it kind of depends on um, what the complications are even going into that delivery. But if you finish on your chemo, your is stable, you've waited three weeks, you don't need a C-section just because you had cancer during pregnancy, you know, unless you had invasive cervical cancer, um, then you can have a regular delivery. Um, but we do see some complications are elevated, but, but tolerable ones.
0: Okay. And is there any special monitoring, testing, diagnostic procedures that patients who are pregnant and become diagnosed with cancer need not for their cancer, but for their pregnancy, like any more increased monitoring of the fetus and things like that.
1: So if someone's having chemotherapy, um, we do a monthly growth ultrasound to make sure that the baby's growing well, um, Usually you're starting it after uh, the first trimester. So um, once you get into those monthly ultrasounds, at some point, the patient's going to feel good movement and you can just tell her if there's any decreased movement, we'll do additional testing uh, a non-stress test as well.
0: So we have the patients who are diagnosed with, um, who are pregnant and diagnosed with cancer. What about... Um, you know, there's what I get a lot of questions about, and this came up a lot when I put up a and a box is what about those patients who are completing cancer treatment or they're on, let's say tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors for several years, um, or they have different cancers and they want to get pregnant. Okay. Tell so
1: Let's start with estrogen negative first. So even, so if you're going to have a pregnancy after treated breast cancer and you have, Done prior to conception, you've done all your surveillance and there's no evidence of recurrence, and you've completed the treatment that you need. Let's not talk about tamoxifen right now, but you completed the treatment you need, your radiation's done. Um, if you wait a good 10 months to a year, there doesn't seem to be an increased risk for recurrence with pregnancy after treated breast cancer, even for estrogen positive patients. The trick with estrogen positive patients is to know how long they should be on the tamoxifen prior to conception. And that study is not done yet. It's going on now um, where they're looking at pregnant women who waited 18 months before they stopped, electively said, okay, I want to have a child now. I'm going to stop my tamoxifen or three years. And that study is ongoing now and we should have an answer soon.
0: I think that study, the positive study is going to be a game changer in how we counsel Patients, because what I do is I kind of model it based on the study, you know, with the understanding that we don't have the results and what we do now may change. Exactly. Based on when the study is published. And now, what about, okay, they come off their tamoxifen, they have their washout period, they successfully get pregnant. Uh, well, let's actually talk about that. Um, and this may not necessarily be up your alley, but a lot of times people ask me, well, how long, you know, should I try to conceive naturally? Or, you know, should I use those eggs that I fro you know, froze before going on chemotherapy?
1: I think it would depend on how comfortable you are with how long she's off those medications. Um, you can always try to conceive spontaneously. It depends if you had your chemo at 38, use your eggs because your chance of, of, you know, ovulating is much lower, but you can also get an, a, um, Um, I think it's AMH, you know, you can get a level done that sees how likely you are to ovulate. I wouldn't do it blindly unless you were in your twenties when you had your chemo and you've been menstruating ever since. Menstruation after chemo doesn't mean you're ovulating after chemo, but they can test an anti-mullerian hormone and see if you have good ovarian reserve or not. And then if you do, you can give yourself, you know, time to conceive spontaneously. And if you don't, then you would use those eggs.
0: And this really speaks to the importance of, you know, patients who are on cancer treatment or completed cancer treatment and trying to get pregnant, the importance of having a team to manage this and come up with a plan that is specific and individual to each person. And like you said, not just trying to go at it blindly.
1: You know, I always recommend- Yeah, you can go at it blindly, but you're going to end up spending a lot of time that you didn't need to spend if all along your ovarian reserve was very low. Mm -hmm. Saved yourself that, you know, time and emotional input if you found out your levels were low versus high.
0: And now what about breastfeeding and in cancer survivors? And, you know, we always, this is a tough one for us because we want people to be able to breastfeed if they want to. Uh, but it's tricky if we also want them to go back on endocrine
1: therapy. Right. That's tricky. Yeah, there's not a right answer to that. I think. Right. I mean, as far people are also concerned that they can't breastfeed. Let's say you went through the pregnancy, you had breast cancer, you treated it with chemo, you finished, you waited your three weeks, you delivered your baby, and now you need radiation because you're going to have lumpectomy. You can still breastfeed when you're going through radiation. A lot of people don't don't realize that. So the milk is not made radioactive, but you would probably not breastfeed from the affected breast just because mastitis is more difficult to treat on that side, but you could breastfeed while you're undergoing radiation.
0: So let's kind of come back a little bit to counseling. And I am really curious about hearing, you know, how you counsel patients and what is the conversation that you have with them? Because, you know, as we talked about, certain treatments are safe during pregnancy, but some of them are not, whether that be, you know, radiation, whether that be immunotherapy, endocrine therapy, Anti-HER2-based therapy. So, you know, when you have, when you sit with a woman and you have these conversations
1: with her, what's your approach? So I asked the patient to ask her oncologist my number one question: how would you treat me if I wasn't pregnant? That to me is the standard we want to get close to. So if it's ariomy cytotoxin followed by taxol, awesome. I can do that. There are still some um Patients that get AC only and they delay the taxol to after delivery. But if if you're going to finish your AC prior to 28 weeks, you can start your taxol during delivery. Um, if you have Hodgkin's lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, it's all the same question. Melanoma. How would you treat me if I wasn't pregnant? Uh, and for most cases, you can stick pretty close to that. Um, Herceptin, you can't do. Um, but if someone conceives a pregnancy on Herceptin, the good news is they don't have to terminate because it doesn't cross the placenta to 14 weeks. So if someone okay. someone on Herceptin should be using birth control, but if they accidentally conceive, they don't need to panic that, oh my God, I discovered my pregnancy on nine weeks. I've been taking Herceptin all this time. It's okay. Stop the Herceptin. You should be able to go forward without a problem. What about Tamoxifen? What about conceiving on tamoxifen? I mean, it's not ideal, but as, a, as soon as you would know you were pregnant, you would stop it, but it's not a reason to terminate the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's,
0: that's really, I think, a big worry for patients in terms of, you know, I mean, we always recommend add, you know, appropriate birth control, but it's tricky if you've had an estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, because a lot of the birth controls we try to limit in terms of the
1: additional hormonal. Impact. I mean, I, I think IUD is such a great form of birth control. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not permanent. It can be easily removed. It doesn't have to be hormonal. And if someone really knows they have a year ahead of treatment and surgery and healing and planning, put it in. I think so. And
0: you can take those out. You know, I think with the hesitation, a lot of my patients will tell me is they know that in two years they're going to want to try to have a baby. And so it's okay to keep that IUD in, right? For only 18 months, let's say.
1: Yeah, it's expensive, but.
0: Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. So back to their meeting with you, they're sitting down with you and you're saying to them, what is the oncologist going to do?
1: So first of all, you can have surgery in any trimester of pregnancy. So if this is a cancer that needs to be surgically removed, I've had patients tell me, well my doctor wants to wait till I'm out of the first trimester or my doctor said I'm in the third trimester. So second trimester is ideal. I can't do surgery. You can do surgery in any trimester of pregnancy. The reason that our literature says the second trimester is ideal is that the first trimester, there's an increase risk for miscarriage. Surgery or not, 15%. Surgery in the first trimester, miscarriage, 15%. Pregnancy first trimester, no surgery, 15%. So there's a risk of miscarriage. In the third trimester, especially if you're having abdominal surgery, if you had colon cancer or um, appendix cancer or something, you're in the abdomen, there's an increase risk of preterm birth. So second trimester, yes, that's ideal, but that doesn't mean that that's the only time you can have surgery in pregnancy. If someone needs to have, you know, we see patients in Camden, the trauma center all the time, pregnant women are in car accidents and and all these things happen and they literally have surgery any week of pregnancy that needs needs to be done. So don't think you can't do it in the first trimester, number one, or that you have to not do it in the third. Um, We are learning more about immunotherapy in pregnancy for melanoma i would use it um we're gonna for lung cancer i would use it um i think we're gonna get more and more information you know and that again is another purpose of a registry because by collecting cases into one location we can you know learn about these patients with melanoma they they had no choice they had to do it they were going to die they did it now we're gonna follow those babies. So now we have information. The next patient that comes along may not be as critically ill, but still has a significant melanoma. Now we can share that information about what happened with the other two patients. So slowly we will accumulate information about immunotherapy. We probably will never do radiation in pregnancy unless it's for the brain, which the distance between the head and the pelvis is low enough. Um, And I just tell, you know, if a patient has a cancer, we've never used chemotherapy before. Um, I mean, we never use the type of chemotherapy. Um, and she's really early in pregnancy. I mean, that's a hard discussion that maybe it's maybe termination is best for her at that moment in her life. And once she's cured of her cancer, there's no reason she can't get pregnant in the future if she maintains her ovulation, et cetera. Um, so it's not always that you're able to do what you would do if you weren't pregnant. It really depends on the type of cancer, the type of chemo you need and the stage of pregnancy that the patient's at. But I always go back to, you know, if you weren't pregnant, how would you be treated?
0: Mm -hmm. Now, I know this is a little bit out of your area of expertise, so please tell me if it it is. In terms of fertility preservation and, you know, when a woman is diagnosed, you know, there's, of course, there's this this need to start right away, right? It's a big diagnosis people just want to get in, get their chemo started. And, you know, we always, always discuss fertility preservation for patients. And a lot of people ask, well, if I don't do it, what are the, what are the odds of me conceiving? And I know we can't answer that. That depends on their age and all these other factors, but, you know, can you speak a little bit about to the safety of fertility preservation and and what your thoughts are on that?
1: Well, in the past, you know, we, we needed a lot of time to do it. You know, it, it would depend on where the person was in their cycle. And if we had four weeks to stimulate them and get eggs and, and fertilize them, et cetera, now you can do it as in as short as two weeks. Um, so if I have a patient who's 20, I would say she needs to start right away. She probably doesn't have as much concern as someone who is in their forties. Um, so it does depend on the agent uh, and it depends on the age, like you said. Um, if somebody has, so there's three choices. Somebody can, if they have time up to two weeks, stimulate <laughs> their ovaries and withdraw the ovaries. And if they have a partner or they want to use donor sperm, they can fertilize that, store embryos. <clears throat> if they want to just freeze eggs, they can just freeze eggs. And if they don't have time to do those two, in some research centers, they can just take a wedge of their ovary by laparoscopy. So I've done this when patients needed to have like a portacath placed and they were gonna have anesthesia anyway. And when they were in the twilight or whatever they needed for the portacath, calf they did a laparoscopy. They took a wedge of ovarian tissue and they froze it. Wow. Now, the number of babies that have been born after that is a lot less than those with just eggs. Can you plug it in for me, John? Just eggs or just um, embryos, but it has been done. So what they would do is they would take that ovarian tissue and implant it back into your pelvis when you're done your treatment, or your arm, and they would simulate ovulation, and they could see it if it's in your arm. And then they would withdraw the eggs. Okay. Then, right, but patients who have done that have also conceived spontaneously, so they don't know if it came from uh, um, the tissue that was in their pelvis, reimplanted in their pelvis, or from residual tumor. Okay. Residual uh, ovarian tissue.
0: That's kind of—I mean—that's just fascinating yeah. that you yeah. can, like, it's crazy that you could put it in your arm of all places. Right. Right. Uh, we use also. We'll do either a Lupron or a Zolidex during pregnancy, just to kind of freeze the ovaries, if you will, before it starts.
1: Yeah, during the during the treatment.
0: During the treatment, and then that you know that data does show that it it can increase the the chance of successful spontaneous conception. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then what, you know, in terms of I, I think I just want to get this a little bit clearer for the audience, when you talk about a 20-year-old versus someone in their late 30s or early 40s, can you actually
1: describe what is happening to the ovaries as people sure. age? Sure. So all of us are born with the maximum number of eggs we're going to have as a as a newborn. And every year, once we start puberty, The ovaries lose their oocytes, they just become atretic. So the number you were born with at birth is the highest number in your lifetime. And when you run out of them is when you go into menopause. So if most women go into menopause in their 50s, if you have chemotherapy, most likely it's gonna be late 40s, early 50s. So if you have a patient who's 40, the number of eggs she has left that are going to mature and ovulate is much less than someone who's 20. It's It's just numbers. So chemotherapy is going to um, affect those primordial follicles that are going, supposed to mature into mature eggs. And so you'll just have less numbers when you're done your chemotherapy. So if you start at 20, you're starting out at a higher number, you might lose the same amount as someone who's 40, but you have a lot left.
0: That that makes sense, okay. That's very helpful. Um, I mean, I think that this was really, really informative. Is there anything that you normally talk about that we didn't cover?
1: I think, well, someone asked, I think, about imaging on the question. So you can do uh, an ultrasound of the breast in pregnancy. You can do a mammogram. The radiation from mammograms is very, very low. You can do CAT scans with contrast. You can do MRIs without contrast. Um, You can do a bone scan if you need to. So uh, the difference in pregnancy is that you wouldn't wouldn't (laughs) stage someone who's asymptomatic with a bone scan, but if someone had bone pain, you could do a bone scan, but you would put a Foley in to kind of drain all the material from her bladder. So it's not sitting right by the uterus. Okay. Um, We don't do PET scans usually, but almost any other scan you can do. So if a patient's concerned about, you know, not having their surveillance for nine months, they can still do that during pregnancy. If someone has a lump, I guess, you know, don't be afraid to bring it to someone's attention. I mean, one of the saddest cases I heard is a patient who, felt a lump and she didn't tell her doctor or her partner cause she thought she was gonna to terminate her pregnancy and she didn't bring it up till after delivery. And she was stage four by then, oh my God. So it was very, very sad. And um, she had a newborn baby. So anything that you would investigate, if you have a lump or you have a mole that you think should be brought to someone's attention and the same part on the doctor's side, if this is a mole that you would remove or biopsy or a lump that if the person wasn't pregnant, you would take care of, you do that. I mean, I hate when I see charts that say, will biopsy at time of delivery? And no, you mm-hmm. biopsy it now when you see it. Um, so biopsy is safe in pregnancy, surgery safe in pregnancy. Um, after 20 weeks, you do have to modify some things. You can't take a pregnant person and lie her entirely flat in surgery, after 20 weeks, the uterus is too large. It compresses the blood vessels going to the uterus and to her head. You have to turn her on her left side or her right side. So if you're working on one breast, you might need to use you know, whatever side to turn her, but um, you can do all that in pregnancy. Colon cancer third trimester gets hard with the big uterus there, um, but rectal cancer, you could do surgery. Um, you can do colonoscopies when someone's pregnant. So. I guess the question, you know, for any patient would, would be, can, what would you do if I wasn't pregnant? Not just with my treatment, but to investigate what's going on. What biopsies would you do? What studies would you do? What labs would you do? Some labs might be affected by pregnancy. Some may not, but you know, you have to, you have to kind of investigate the same as if someone wasn't pregnant and then take it from there.
0: What, who needs to be part of that team? So You know, we're lucky in the Northeast, we have these comprehensive centers and we've got all these people who are part, but let's say you're maybe in a more rural setting and you are pregnant and newly diagnosed with cancer, and you're just not sure how to best advocate for yourself. You know, who needs to be part of those decision-making? You know, it's not just the patient and the oncologist, obviously.
1: I think an OBGYN or maternal fetal medicine person, especially because A lot of times the oncologist or the surgeon will say, well, I'll just deliver you at 30 weeks and you need that MFM input or neonatal input to say, okay, this is what it means to have a baby at 30 weeks versus 32 versus 34. I've delivered patients at 34 weeks who were, you know, hypoxic with lung cancer and and it wasn't doing the baby any good to stay in there. So it, it happens, but you need to know what it means for that neonate. So a neonatal doctor or a maternal fetal medicine to give that input of what it means to have a preterm birth. Um, Sometimes we get behavioral medicine involved. You know, someone it was very ill and had to deal with being in the hospital to get chemo, uh, and had children at home. So sometimes the psychologist is a part of that team. Um, but I would say someone who knows about OB and pediatric, you know, pediatrics of some sort, and mm-hmm. someone in oncology. I mean, what can't happen, and what happened with my first case, is the oncologist said, "I'm going to treat the cancer as if she's not pregnant, and I'll call you a delivery," <sighs> and. You can't work like that because just from the very first time I met that patient, she was on her way to get a nuclear study of her heart. And I said, wait a minute, you need that nuclear study of your heart before you get adriamycin. but can't you get an echo, which is an ultrasound of your heart, which has no radiation at all and gives the same information about whether your heart can, can take that chemo. So there has to be that dialogue. Well, you can't do this in pregnancy, but you can do that. You can't do an MRI with contrast, but you can do an MRI without contrast. You can't do an extra. You can't, you know, there has to be a dialogue. So I would say someone in OBGYN or maternal through medicine with the oncologist Mm -hmm. um, and the patient. And the other important thing is for oncologists to know is that um, I work with this group in Europe who they have a grant to study cancer pregnancy and they have, um, you know, much smaller countries. So they have one big overriding board with Scandinavia and Amsterdam and, just Belgium, all these different countries feed into it. And everyone who's dealt with cancer and pregnancy with an interest can help manage cases. So an oncologist from anywhere can go on to this um, advisory board for cancer and pregnancy and type in. So even if that oncologist has never seen a cancer, you know, patient with cancer before and is in a rural area and has no resources, you go in and you say, this is my patient. This is the stage of pregnancy. This is what I'm thinking of using I'm asking for advice and then I'll put in about the OB part and oncologist will put in about the oncology part and someone else. And we'll give a concise letter at the end that says, you know, this is what we suggest.
0: And and it really speaks to the fact that I I think it's important for patients to ask their team, you know, how, how comfortable are you with this, right? Mm -hmm. Do you have experience and because they may, or they may not. And again, there's so many, I think, Connect, online connectedness opportunities now, or, you know, ways to connect with other people who right. are experts in the field that, but I, I think it's really, I always want patients to feel comfortable asking, you should ask, you know, how comfortable are you with treating cancer and pregnancy?
1: Right. And and it doesn't have to be someone who's done it before. Exactly. Right? exactly. You're it's not so going to find for. out about it. Right? Yeah. It doesn't have to be, it just has to be someone who's willing to read the literature, who's willing to have a discussion with you, you know, even that first oncologist said, no, I'm treating her the same as I treated all patients with Hodgkin's lymphoma. She must terminate. It had to be a dialogue. It took like a couple of days to re- to review things and say, well, you can do the ultrasound instead of the nuclear study. And she's almost out of the first trimester. And this chemo has been given in these many cases. And it was his first case And he- and she stayed with him and he stayed with her, but it was a dialogue and it took time to read the literature and feel comfortable. So as long as that doctor is willing to talk to people and read the literature, they don't have to have a lot of experience. They have to have a lot of um, comfort.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that that there's so important to have that trust that yeah. everyone's talking and um, you know, I'll share a case that I had recently where it was a little bit complicated because it was a case that would not have required chemotherapy. It was a very early stage breast cancer diagnosed early mm-hmm. and normally we would have done surgery and done endocrine therapy, but it was so early in the pregnancy that we thought, well, how are we going to, you know, it it would have been months without some sort of treatment. And ultimately we, you know, there was an intermediate oncotype and we kind of, we went with four cycles of AC, um, just to kind of give something, but this was a decision made, not just by me, I contacted many other oncologists, people that have done a lot of um, you know, ca- cancer and pregnancy tr- uh, patients. And so I think it's important to just be open. And, and I think also to talk to our patients and tell them that, you know, to be, I think, transparent about you know, the, what the risks are, what our knowledge is based, what our knowledge base here is, is in the field is.
1: I agree. Yeah. Um, Elise, is there anything we didn't touch on that you want to share? I don't think so. I mean, I just, I want patients to understand that again, even if they have a treatment plan and, and they have their delivery plan, you know, everything's fine. They don't need advice. uh, They still can share their information because, you know, the, the moms, the other nice thing about being in the registry is not only that you have, we have more numbers to study. Like we didn't know about Taxol in pregnancy, we accumulated 90 cases. And now you use tax in pregnancy. A few years ago, that would not have been done. So we learn about different things that are necessary as they become necessary, but also it's a common place for women to call. So a couple of years ago, actually many years ago, a patient called and said, um, my child has a lot of cavities. Do you think it was the chemo? And I started to talk to her and I said, well, what, did you put the baby to sleep at the bottom? And she goes, oh, yes. you know I." my family does that. Well, that's probably why the baby got cavities. You're not supposed to put the baby to sleep with, you know, formula or milk on their teeth. Okay. Eight years later, another patient calls and I say, huh, that's interesting. It's the second person that called. No, I haven't heard women complain that their kids have a lot of cavities. And like two months later, another mother called. So we're said, okay, Now that's three, even though we had an explanation for the first. So now we started collecting dental records on all the kids, you know, reaching out to the moms Mm -hmm. in the registry. Can we follow your child's dental records in addition to their siblings records? Because maybe you feed them the same amount of juice and the same amount of sweets and the same amount of um, fluoride is in your home. And we looked at it and we did not find a difference, but we would not have done that study if it wasn't for those women. So moms may recognize something that we need to look at. We don't even know. Mm -hmm. by, by having a central place to call, we can look into that. Now, two last questions about the registry.
0: Can patients enter the registry after they've given birth? Let's say they have a 12 month old at home, or do they need to start from, you know, their diagnosis? I
1: mean, I like to do a diagnosis because then it's prospective and I'm not just entering everyone with a good outcome, everyone with a concerning outcome, everyone with complicated, like it's, it's all coming, but I have entered women retrospectively because we will still follow the child prospectively okay yes you can enroll you know at any time and where can patients go to enroll so they can just go to www.cancerandpregnancy.com or they can email cancerinpregnancy@cooperhealth.edu. cancer in pregnancy at
0: cooperhealth.edu okay and you're also on social media where can they yes. do
1: cancer and pregnancy on instagram and facebook
0: okay Fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you you so much for listening to my conversation with Dr. Cardonek. I think that it was incredibly helpful and informative. Cancer during pregnancy is rare. It occurs in one every 1000 pregnancies. And so I think that the work that she is doing in putting together this comprehensive registry is just incredible because without it, there would be no way to capture this data and thus no way to inform how we can manage, how we can best treat patients who are pregnant and diagnosed with cancer. You know, we've advanced a lot in this area due to this incredible work. And I'm I'm so grateful for Dr. Cardonic for taking the time to speak with me and share all of her incredible wisdom with us. You can find Dr. Cardonek on Instagram at cancer and pregnancy. She's got a lot of really, really helpful information there that I would urge you to check out. You can also find the registry at cancerandpregnancy.com, um, and there's a lot of great information on there as well um, that you can. Um, and there's a lot of great information on there as well as information about how to enroll onto the registry. You can find me at Dr. Toplinsky on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And as always, if you have a moment, I am so grateful if you can leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts, as that is really the best way to help me grow the show and to bring it to new listeners. Thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you soon.